0: why do we do church membership? Why is church membership a thing? And I'm gonna apologize ahead of time that if this is a little clunkier than I'd like because um, I usually don't teach off of a, a screen like this and I'd use something completely different. So content will be good, presentation, there'll be grace, hopefully. Um, so why, why do we do church membership? Why, why do we need to constrict and put some sort of um, in-out why can't we just be, everyone's welcome, free for all. And, and, and just to be clear, everybody is welcome. Um, but church membership is is a thing that we are passionate about. And hopefully I can convince you from the Bible why we do it. So um, please grab a Bible or a phone. We're going to start off by explaining what is the church. To be able to explain why we do church membership, we also want to understand What is the church? If we have a faulty understanding of the church, we'll have a faulty understanding of membership, and it makes sense why we don't believe in membership. Um, let's, Let's pray really quickly. Father, help. Help and make much of Jesus. Holy Spirit, make much of Jesus and help us um, understand what it means to be members of the church. And may this be precious. I pray for clarity. I pray that you would help me despite all of my lack of wisdom and trying a whole new program a couple hours ago. And <laughs> Help me. Help me. Help your people. And I pray this would be um, transformative in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, what a local church is not. Let's start there. Okay, If you are a Christian, the local church is not a club. It's not a voluntary organization where membership is optional for you. It's not a friendly group of people who share an interest in religious things, so they gather weekly to talk about the divine. Nor is a church a service provider where the customer has all the authority. Now, I'm going to lean heavily into this book called Church Membership. Um, I, I know that you guys just got... just. Um, we all got our butts kicked doing saturate, okay? There's a lot. And um, Matt Chandler of the Village Church, uh, th- that, that church requires everyone to read this book if you want to be a member. Were you at that church? No. But okay. Like okay. Been. Um, you have to read this whole thing. I'm not going to ask you to do that as a requirement, but I'm encouraging you to. But I'm leaning into this for some of this teaching. So I just want you to know. It's only 100 pages, it's fantastic. Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. This is Ross's copy. Thank you. Um, let me give you a couple, this couple, couple symptoms of wrong thinking about the church, okay? And, and this is for me, too. Um, but as I go down this list, try to take mental note if any of these apply to you, and they may be a hint that we're not seeing the church as the Bible sees the church. One, Christians can think it's fine to attend the church indefinitely without joining. Two, Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining. Three, Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining. Four. And that one is... I could put an asterisk on that one. Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience for Christians and not as an activity for church members who are incorporated into body life together. Four. Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints. Five. Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from church gatherings a few Sundays a month or more. Six. Christians make major life decisions, moving, accept accept a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc., without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. Six, Christians buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard to how factors such as distance and cost will affect their abilities to serve their church. Seven Christians don 't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of the other members of their church, even members they have not met when one mourns, one mourns by himself. when one rejoices, one rejoices by herself. Now that would have been a lot easier if the screens were working, okay, but I hope you could you, you could catch enough of that to see that these Thoughts, if you think this way, it's symptomatic of probably a deeper issue of not understanding what the church is. So let me give you three metaphors of what a church is. The church is more than this, but these are three I think that are really helpful. First of all, the church is an embassy. Church is an embassy. And this is maybe unfamiliar. Just real quick, who has heard the church is an embassy before? Okay, a couple people. Okay, church is an embassy. Um, let me give you a text to, to kind of ground that in. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that word citizenship. We are citizens of a kingdom, and we're wait, awaiting. We're waiting for our king, and he's ruling from afar. He's ruling remotely through his citizens. So when we first talk about church, before we talk about as a family or about a body or the temple or the bride, we want to establish that, first of all, it's Jesus is Lord and King of this church. The the church's authority, it shapes all the other things. If you don't have Jesus as the head, as the authority, and we're citizens of his kingdom, then you will have a faulty understanding of family and as a body. It all come to the head of Jesus as the king. And so a local church is a real-life embassy set in present that represents Christ's future kingdom and His coming universal church. Let me unpack that. So what is an embassy? Have you guys ever been to an embassy before? I've never been to an embassy. I've seen one before, and I've seen it in movies, okay? So, so I'm, I'm educated to tell you what an embassy is, right? But an embassy typically uh, has ambassadors, and it's an institution that represents one nation inside another nation it declares the home nation's interest to this host nation and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in the host nation did you guys follow that that's kind of crazy right there's a home nation and then there's a host nation and so the embassy is in the host nation representing the home nation Oh, man. And so a local church is like a branch of the embassy. And so here's a few implications of the church as an embassy. The church is in a foreign hostile territory. We are setting up shop in hostile territory, setting our stake, representing our King Jesus. And we're not in our land, but one day it will be our land. Two, we represent Jesus individually and collectively to the world. If the world wants to know, if this, this host nation wants to know what our home nation is like, they look at us. If they want to know what our king is like, they look at us. That's why ambassadors never turn off their job description. Like they never clock out. If you're an ambassador for the United States in South Korea and you go bar hopping, and hanging out. It doesn't matter that it's no longer five o'clock, right? What you do and that may get on the news represents the United States, right? And so an ambassador is twenty four seven, and you're collectively giving that home a picture of your home. And here's a third one. This is the t- tricky one. Embassy uh, embassies affirm citizenship so if you lived in south korea let's just use that and you your passport was expired where would you go the embassy and the embassy can't make you a citizen but they can confirm you as a citizen they affirm you oh yeah yeah he's with us he's with us He's got the right characteristics, the the papers to to do that. In a similar way, the church is in an embassy here that one another, we affirm each other's citizenship to King, King Jesus. And so that's why it's so beautiful for baptism to happen in the life of the church because the other people are saying, yes, we see Jesus' as fruit in that person. We affirm that. We celebrate. And that's also a great comfort and affirmation for the person, too. Because the day that the dark night of your soul happens, when you're struggling, you're doubting, you can have your fellow brothers and sisters like, no, no, we vouch for you. We're here with you. You're one of us. You you may not be living like one of us in this one moment, but you're one of us. And and we affirm each other. We challenge each other to live like we are citizens because we are. And so this is a tricky one because this will eventually touch on church discipline. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So um, an embassy, the church is like an embassy. And Jesus is the Lord. Second, the church is a body. If you go to 1 Corinthians 12.12, 12, I'll wait for you guys this time. I did a cardinal mistake and that's read a passage, just kept going. It's a precious chapter. We're only going to read one verse, but 1 Corinthians 12.12 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body so it is with Christ okay there's a lot more here but um, in other words the church we're also the body of Christ and Jesus is our head this is why we are part of Soma family of churches because Soma is emphasizing that we are a, a people a body we're not a building we're the people of God and this word member that we use for membership is more closely related to this word that we just heard, member. So, what's the medical term if you lose a part of your body? Dismemberment. Dismemberment. So, it's just the same picture that every single one of us are connected to each other and connected to our head, Jesus. And so, if we lose one part of our body, it's like we're losing a piece of our physical body. We're dismembered. And yet, so we're deeply connected to each other. So what are the implications of this? That we are diverse, yet unified. That in the body, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, there's going to be people who are going to be the tongue, people who are going to be the head, people who are going to be the shoulders, knees and toes, right? And you're going to have people who are going to be the appendix, which we're like, why the heck are you part of the body? You know, you do nothing, right? <laughs> but they're part of the body, and they're beautiful, and they're precious, we love them. If you're not careful, they could burst, and you could die one day, Right? <laughs> And so you have all these pieces that are connected, all functioning different ways to contribute to the overall mission of the body. So we're diverse and unified. And another thing, we need each other. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, you can't just say, Oh, I don't need my foot anymore or my toe. I don't need my hand. We need each other and we're connected to each other. So we are a body. And so, I mean, if you think about it, if we really believe the church is a body, and we had someone in our church struggling and, and, and going through deep spiritual sickness, we wouldn't ignore that. Because if they're not doing well, then we're not doing well. So if I got gangrene on my foot, people are like, Dude, your foot, what's wrong? It's just my foot. It's fine. Like, it's fine. Sam, do you not realize your foot is connected to your body? It's going to affect your whole body. Hence why in 1 Corinthians, it also talks about if you have one part that is, is sinful and you let it go rampant, it's going to infect like yeast the whole body. So if we really believe the church is a body, then if one part is hurting, then all I'm hurting. And that's the same kind of logic Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, right? My, wife's, my body is my wife's, my wife's body is mine. Why would I ever hurt my wife? Why would I ever hurt my own, just punch myself? Right? It, that same kind of imagery is for the, the church, and so if one of you guys are struggling, then I'm struggling, which is extremely hard for us as Americans, because we, we have these terms we have these sayings like to each their own. Oh, that's, that's your issue. That's my issue as long only to the extent it affects me. But what we don't realize is it does affect us. We need each other, we're dependent on each other, and if one part hurts, the rest of us hurt. Three: The church is a family. Church is a family. You guys have heard us say this over and over again. But note, the church is not like a family, it is a family. God is literally our Father. Jesus literally our elder brother, and we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. Mark chapter three, verse 35, if you can quickly turn there. Mark 3:35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I love to camp on this, but remarkable. This is remarkable. Jesus is saying, if we do the will of God, we are his brother and sister. You could be Jesus' brother. How crazy is that? Is that crazy? That's so crazy. Jesus could be my... Related to Jesus. And we also know if you go to Romans 8 that we have been given the spirit of adoption, that we are adopted and we can cry, Abba, Father. Who's the only person in the Bible that says Abba, Father? Jesus. We can relate to the Father the way Jesus relates to him. This is just, this is, this is good news. This is amazing. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, you guys have seen this. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So we are a family. If you were a Christian, you've been brought into the family of Jesus. And so here are some implications of the church as a family. If you are in a family, you have all things in common, right? I mean, there is a sense of like, that's kind of yours, but it's all ours. I always say this to Elijah, especially she, he'll be, he'll be like, Eden's got my toy. And what I always correct him, it's our toy, it's our toy. Right, In one sense, you spend time with that toy more than others, but it's ours. It's under the Choi name. You're part of the family. And so if you look at chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, one of the beautiful statements, it says they had all things in common. They didn't count anything as their own. And have you guys ever met a Christian who really believed that? I've met a few, and they just challenged me like crazy, and I love them to death. I remember one brother that I influenced me more than most Christians in my life. In my top three I remember anytime I asked him for anything or anything he said oh it's yours it's not mine it's yours your family's it's yours anything even costly money or his car co- I mean I I started turn, turning into a game to see how far he would go how much do you believe this I just ask him for outrageous things it's just, just test them it, it was quite quite I was 18 all right <laughs> and he was the most godly person I knew at the time and had so much self-control that this is not even a, a, a lie Literally, my friends one time put fire on his foot to see if he'd get mad at them. That was just messed up, and he didn't. He was like, ow, why'd you do that? Amazing, amazing. Anyway, um, could someone be so kind to crack the door or close the door? That would would really be helpful. Thank you so much. Um, That's a good man right there. Andrea was about to, and he was like, no, I'll serve you. Um, Another implication of the church as a family we love one another no matter what. I was just in Georgia and spending time with my family, and I thought about, just, I just had this fictitious um, picture in my head of doing something awful, like saying some awful thing about my sister to my parents. Okay? And eventually that would get back to her and how mad she would be and how she may not talk to me for a little bit, and she'd say some hard things to me. But eventually, she'd work it out with me she's my sister we have this preconditioned idea that because we're family you know what we're going to just it's going to work out we're going to make it work i mean i know that there's extreme conditions where there's estrangement and it takes forever but in general the mindset is you know what we're family family loves each other and can you imagine what our church could be like if we had that mindset that the most annoying person or awkward, or the person who was so hard to love or so rude, that was like, Your family, I'm gonna make it work with you. I'm gonna love you to the end. That would be amazing. I would love that kind of love. <laughs> Third, we are unified by our father, by our head, not our race or income or interests. But a family can have diversity. And, and you've seen this. Anytime I have a family, and I'm, I'm sure the Hassans know this, all your kids, they're all different in many ways. And that's a beautiful thing. And, but they're all unified because they're under the Hassan home. And so it's the same thing. And there's many other implications as a family. Now, let me define what a local church is. I think that will help. So we talked about the church as a... Can, can you guys remember? What was the first one? Church is a... Embassy, then church is a body, and church is a family. Great. Now, this is my best shot at a definition. Now, this is, one of, this is not a short definition. It's a thorough definition. It's a Bethlehemian <laughs> definition. Okay? No hyphens, though. A local church is a family of Christians under the lordship of Jesus who have com- covenanted with each other to represent Jesus, love one another, and make disciples through regular fellowship, the preaching of the gospel, teaching of the word, oversight of leaders, church discipline, gospel ordinances, and mission together. Isn't that beautiful? It just rolls off your tongue, right? Just very tattoo worthy. Now, let's talk about the necessity of membership, okay? I can't unpack that definition, but now um, I, hopefully I gave us a, a, a good picture, a biblical picture of what the local church is. Now, real quick, because I, I can't assume this, in Scripture, we see the Bible talk about both the universal church and the local church. And it speaks about it interchangeably, and you can only figure out what it's talking about with context. So you got the church universal of saints of all times and all places worshiping in Nepal and worshiping back 300 years ago. That's the universal church. And then you got something called the local church, which is very geographically based, and it's connected to certain leadership of uh, people who are committed to each other. Now, let me try to give you a biblical, short biblical argument of why it's necessary to have membership, okay? You don't have to have membership, but I think it's necessary. It's, it's a really, really good idea. So maybe, maybe that word necessity is, is an overstatement, but I think, I think you should have it. Here's, here are three reasons, okay? One, to practice the one and others. In Scripture, there's 50 plus one and others in New Testament. Two, to have oversight and submission. And three, church discipline. Okay, let me break those apart. Number one, practicing the one another's. There are over 50 plus one another's in the New Testament. And so the question is, how do you actually do those one another's if you don't know who those one another's are? So here's a passage. John 13, 34 through 35. I'm going to fly through these so if you, can, you can turn them to them if you're like a super Awana person and you can do it real quick. Okay, John 13, 34 through 35. Some people are like, I want to prove it. <laughs> a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love from one another now notice a couple of things so we're, we're called to love one another like jesus loves no big deal <laughs> um it's a huge thing and and we're to love one another reciprocally and then by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another if you have love one another so basically The idea is that there's going to be a group of people that love each other in such a crazy Jesus-like way that other people will know that Jesus is real. Which to me suggests that it can't just be random people. It seems like it's a community of people who are mutually loving each other in sacrificial, visible ways that people take note. And it's not just one way, but it's two ways. They're loving each other. So I think that necessitates a commitment to a certain people rather than just a shotgun approach of just, hey, bless up, do good to everybody, which we should do that too. But this is very specific. Hence why in Galatians it talks about do good to all people, especially the household of faith. Romans 12, 15 through 16 says this, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with. With one another does that suggest just a random group of people or or a community sounds like a community it's hard to just weep because if it's weep for those who weep, i'm going to be weeping all the time if it's just everybody right because there's always someone weeping in the world it sounds like a committed group of people who are weeping and carrying each other's burdens galatians chapter 6 and rejoicing with one another not just Every single person and all Christians, in all places, in all times. That would be exhausting. Romans 15.1 says this, We who are, are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. To me, this almost demands a group of people who are committed to each other because if you're going to be obligated to bear with the weak, then... You have to have people who are like in your life that are weak and that you have to be like, oh, you're weak, but I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love a has Love me. And I feel like if you didn't have that commitment, you could just just kind of go to another person. There, there's a commitment. There's a people um, there. Here's another one. Another. There's many. But here's another one. Encourage one another. Try to go to Hebrews 10, 25 real quickly, if you can flip there. Hebrews 20, 10, 25. Hebrews 10, 25 says this, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And go to Hebrews 12, 15, real quick, just flip there. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexual immoral, immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Look at both of these passages, the one in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. At it both, it, do not neglect to meet together. That passage, that command, necessitates that you have people you're meeting together. Not just anybody, anywhere. Encourage one another. How do you truly encourage people you don't have con- consistent fellowship with and that you know? In Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So there's a guarding of one another. So to be able to guard people, you have to know them. They're people you're committed to. So those are a handful of one another's. One another's necessitates to me membership. And one another's is why we are doing this model of church with missional communities being kind of the center, rather than the Sunday gathering. Because you can't do all the one another's in an hour and a half on a Sunday. You can't. You just can't unless you have like five people. You can't do that. Number two, here's another reason why membership. Oversight and submission. Okay, let me unpack those two. Would you please turn to Hebrews 13, 17? Okay, this is an important one. And if you could turn to it, that would help. Hebrews 13, 17. Could you read this, Ross? Just to share my save my voice and have another voice up. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's great. So, a couple of things here. Let's break it apart. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Um So, there's a command to some people, okay, we're not going to clarify yet, to obey some leaders and to submit to them. Four, why? Why these people? What are they doing? They're keeping watch over your souls. Hence why you cannot do TV church or internet church only for a really short season, maybe you're sick that day. Like, you can't do that. How can you keep watch over people's souls in whom names you don't even know? Which is, to me, why one a big push of why m- mega churches have a hard time shepherding. It's hard to shepherd people that you don't even know you're the pastor of. Hence, you have to have a lot of complicated, like hierarchy of small group leaders, or small group leaders, or leaders, leaders, leaders who know your people. Um, I think it's easier if you just multiply and plant more churches. That's that's my two cents. But. Um, so, two implications that you see. There's implication for church members in this passage and implication for church leaders. First of all, for church members, who are you to obey? Do you just obey anyone who's a pastor or an elder anywhere? Or that 19-year-old guy who walks up to your front door on a bicycle who's an elder? You guys know what i talking about? <laughs> you, just, you just... Anybody? So, do we submit to the Westboro Baptist pastor Because he's a pastor, we obey the leaders of our own church, the people who know you. So by no means you have to obey any other leader in the same way by no means does any woman have to listen to a man who's not their husband, which there's some people who are like, I'm a man, you're a woman, you should obey me. Get out of here. Submit to me. No. All right. Another thing. Church members, or church leaders, who are you to give an account for? Do I, am I going to be held accountable? Will, will, will Jared and Ross be, Jared and Ross, I switch you guys. Will Jared and Ross be held accountable for the person in Timbuktu? This, the famous Timbuktu that everyone quotes, right? Will we be held accountable for every single Christian in the Twin Cities? No, we're held accountable for a particular flock that we are keeping watch over the soul, which is crazy. If you can, go to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, like don't use them so you can get money or so you can get fame, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, because we're under shepherds, Jesus, the chief shepherd appears. you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's beautiful, but it's weighty. Which is why we're going to send to you in the next day an elder covenant of what we're giving, we're covenanting to God and to you guys for. It goes both ways. And we're also going to send you guys a church member covenant also, what we're committing to one another, which all the elders will sign that one too, because we are members before we are pastors. All right, third, church discipline. Now, this is a doozy, okay? Okay. So get ready for it and be, um, just know that there's a lot to this and there's another book that is like that blue church membership book and it's read, called Church Discipline and it's about 100 pages, which I highly recommend for every Christian to read sometime in their life. Um, but I will do my best to give you an overview. I'm not going to hit all the nuances, so forgive me if I'm not as nuanced as I like, but you don't want to be here for three hours. All right. Let me read a quote to you from Jonathan Lehman, who's kind of like the guru for church, for church discipline and church membership. Not because he, like, loves discipline. He, he loves Jesus and loves the church. Let's be clear, okay? He's a great guy. Broadly, church discipline is one part of the discipleship process. Let's just stop there, okay? Whenever I say church discipline, I often think excommunication. Does anyone go there? Like, church discipline, like, oh, the person's going up, we're, we're, you know, church discipline is me just going up to Isaiah. It's like, hey, bro, like, I noticed this, or can I make an observation? That's part of church discipline, or flip it. He, he Isaiah comes up to me and he says, hey, Sam, like, I feel like you were kind of ignoring your family the other day during dinner. You were on your phone a lot. That's discipline, and most church discipline just is on that level, Encouraging each other, asking questions, pressing in, helping us become like Jesus. Church discipline that doesn't have much fruit and keeps escalating ultimately ends at something like excommunication, which the purpose of that ultimately is for reconciliation. I'm doing this because I want to be reconciled with you. And so let me unpack that a little more, okay? So again, this is just church discipline is is very ordinary to just... It is very, every day. Church discipline should be happening all the time, not once a year. And excommunication is only the result of a very, very, very long process, ordinarily. There are times where a sin is so heinous, so public, that it needs to be, ex, um, it needs to be expedited to that point so that it can be investigation. So if I was caught sleeping around, there's not a, hey, Sam, like, can we talk to you about that? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I wanna talk about that. Bring another person, do Matthew 18, and you, no. You immediately remove me from my office, bring me before people, and and then investigate, and go through reconciliation process. Is that clear? Okay, so ordinarily, it's a a very, very long process before you can get to any excommunication. But let's get to text. okay, let's get to text. First Corinthians five, one through five, okay? I'm not going to do a whole sermon on this, and, and God help me not do that, because we don't have time for that. First Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Let me just give you the background, but basically there was a man who was probably sleeping with his mother-in-law. Wait, his mother-in-law? No, his, his, his dad's wife, which was stepmom. Did you say stepmom? Thanks. That's a good wife right there. Um, thanks, honey. He was probably sleeping with his stepmom, and they were rejoicing at the grace of God rather than totally disciplining this guy and rebuking him. And so basically Paul is like, yo, this is worse even among unbelievers. What are you doing? And what he does is basically says this, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present. Okay, so they come together, assembled. Okay, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A couple things to quickly note. That word, so that, is so important because we want him to be saved. We want him to be reconciled. That's the purpose. Not, how dare you be off?" And we spit on your ground of where you were. You know, it's a, we, oh, and we want you back. But you can't be back right now because this is not, you're not right with Jesus and you're not going to represent Jesus rightly together as a church. That's first, the, the purpose is so important. We can't lose the purpose. Okay? And, and I'm not going to unpack what this deliver this man to Satan means because that's crazy. But it's, it's not that crazy. It's, it's pretty simple. But, um, what we're doing is we're basically saying, this person, we can no longer confirm this person is a Christian. See, because remember, we're an embassy. We affirm each other's citizenship. As a church, we're not saying this person isn't safe, but what we are saying is, sadly, the evidence is not looking good, and we can no longer, with a good conscious conscience, affirm this person's salvation. And we do not want the world to say, oh, that person is part of APC, or that part, person is part of cities, or, or whatnot. They are not representing Jesus, and they are not part of us, okay? It's it's like the person, it's like us saying that person does not, should not wear the jersey. They may wear the jersey, but they're not part of us. It's a way for us to protect the gospel, because if we have a bunch of people who are betraying the gospel with their very lives, then it's giving the world an inaccurate picture of who Jesus is. And so this is deadly serious for our mission. That's why we can't take church discipline lightly, And just be like, oh, you know, we don't want to be mean. No, no, the gospel is at stake. If you have enough people doing anti-gospel living, you are going to give the world an anti-picture of the gospel. Matt Chandler says of this passage, he says this, My question out of this text is simple. How can can you kick someone out if there isn't an in? How can you kick someone out if there's no in? If there's no local commitment to a covenant community of faith, then how do you remove someone from that community of faith? Church discipline won't work if local membership doesn't exist. And so for us to to be able to say this person is no longer of us, we have to have some sort of way to say who is of us. Hence why we do church membership. Does Does that make sense? You guys can push back if that's not clicking, that logic doesn't work. It, you could do it if you had a small group of people, but it's just harder to do it. The moment you get a little, little bigger. That's why church membership is helpful. I, I, I didn't, um, I'm didn't. i going to quickly just touch on Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a similar uh, connected. It's another passage on church discipline, but basically there's a process. You, you talk to the person, then you bring others, and then you bring more, and finally you bring it to the whole church, and the church is the final authority to say, you know what, we, we plead with you. And I remember couple years ago when I was a Bethlehem member like four years three and a half years ago right before I went to cities there was a brother who he went through this whole process tons and tons of meetings I mean dozens and dozens of hours and finally he was brought up to the front during a quarterly strategy meeting they're having one right now strategy meeting uh, a membership meeting and I remember different people pleading with him please you're wrong turn and as a final stand, we, we as a congregation said, please, turn. And he wouldn't. And so as a church, we said, we can no longer confirm you. You're no longer a member at Bethlehem, and we no longer can confirm your membership to the body of Christ. And as far as I know, he has not turned yet. It just breaks my heart. Real quick, let me, let me say this. Church discipline is a loving thing doesn't sound loving but church discipline is a loving thing I I remember actually during that same meeting some this this one guy who was excommunicated he was he was bringing charges that the elders were, were were being dishonest and I remember a lady came up to speak just crying and she said my husband was church disciplined by these elders couple of years ago and and she she was just praising the love um, she had for these elders who walked through this process carefully and and now the husband was I think in the process of reconciliation and I just found that so beautiful because here's a woman who is going to bat for the elders and her husband was publicly excommunicated and yet she called that right and good and loving that's powerful And so at the core of it, church discipline is about love. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And just like a father must discipline his children if he loves them, God must discipline and he disciplines often through the church. And the problem is many of us have sentimentalized this view of love. Love as being made special. If, that, if love is being, feel, feeling like you're being made much of or special, then church discipline categorically doesn't sound like love. We've romanticized our view of love. And so love is being allowed to express yourself without correction. Or a consumeristic view. Love as finding the perfect fit. And love has little to do in our culture with truth and holiness and authority. But that's not love in the Bible. Love in the Bible makes demands. It yields obedience. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus tells us if we keep his commands, we will abide in his love. And on and on. And I know you guys well enough that you guys know that. To, To truly love something means you have to do hard things. And so, sadly, I pray we'll never have to go to the final end of church discipline. And you know how that happens? That we do the everyday church discipline well. That's why we're so committed to one another's and life-on-life community. Because it's the man that usually has the affair. No one starts off with the affair. No one starts off with the worst decision of your life. You start with a lot of dozens of little bad decisions that build and build. And what if we could be such a loving community and care for another and know each other so well that we catch those things early on and help each other so that there's never a day where it's like, oh, where did that come from? I pray, oh God, may we be that kind of community that will never be blindsided, like, oh, I never knew because we're so caring in each other's lives. Amen for that? Amen. I mean, but yet, oh me, because that kind of intimacy is terrifying because we want to hold on and we don't want people to see. And that's why we need the gospel to continue to help us feel secure in His love. Let me bring it all together in conclusion. If we're going to obey these commands, these one and others, three things need to be true about a relationship with the local church. Okay, these three things: one, a committed relationship. We have to have a committed relationship. Number two, we have to have a committed. We have to be committed to a defined group of people. Notice that word defined is important. We have to be committed to a defined group of people, not just all people, which is impossible to do. And three, we give these people permission to speak hard words into our life. So three main words, committed, defined, and permission. We have to give these people, we have to be committed to a relationship, we have to be committed to a defined group of people for that relationship, and we have to give those very people permission to speak hard words into our life. And that's just hard words, encouraging words, life-giving words. And so, beloved, if we are to present Jesus rightly to the world and obey the one another's scriptures, we need church membership. So that's why we do church membership, and that's why um, I wanted to give this talk before we even make any membership covenants.